Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Other Side Podcast mission is to discuss important cultural and social issues relating to race, culture, gender, and equality. Hello, thanks for joining us for another episode of The Other Side Podcast. I'm Scott Kirk here with Lucas Sullivan, and today we'll be talking to former Franklin County Auditor Clarence Mingo. I just want to add that this is a two-part episode, so be sure to check back for the second half. Yeah, so this is one, if you don't know Mr. Mingo, he has quite the background. If you could just kind of briefly fill us in, I mean, Persian golf veteran, I could wax poetic, but <laughs> could you just kind of, I'm a lawyer, yeah. all of it. I mean, you're kind of a, um, yeah. you know, you're kind of the Swiss army knife of, of human <laughs> beings. You know what? I, I've been called many things, uh, but not the Swiss army knife of human beings, but I'll take it, Lucas. Okay. So thank you for having me here today. Really looking forward to today's conversation. But look, I'm from Canton, Ohio originally. Graduated from Canton McKinley. I know there are a lot of people listening to this. A lot of those folks have been beaten by Canton McKinley. Yeah, I was going to say, big football school. There you go. And big, big, um, big sports school in general. That's right. That's right. But I graduated Canton McKinley, enlisted in the United States Army, was in the first Persian Gulf War, served with the Army's 1st Infantry Division, and left the military uh, due to, to medical reasons, found my way at Ohio State University, earned a law degree and degree in political science and, and practice law and, and, and child advocacy and things of that nature. Always wanted to be in public service, sort of the plan from the beginning, and was appointed as auditor in 2009, elected twice thereafter, and um, uh, lost um, uh, a pivotal race here in 2018. And, and so now I'm slowly migrating to the other side of my experience in public service. And so it's it's been a good journey. In the political world, somewhat of a, of a unicorn being a black Republican and holding a significant office, which doesn't happen a lot in Ohio. Yeah. But, you know, that too, I know, has shaped you and yeah. and raising your kids and, and, you know, being a husband. I know that stuff's most important to you. So I know you talked about it, but the Persian Gulf War, what's it like to be in a war? Yeah. You know, Lucas, I grew up late 70s and, of course, throughout the 80s. And during that time, it was Red Dawn. It was John Rambo. It was the M60 machine gun that you could hold with one hand. And every kid on the block dreamed about that type of experience. You wanted to be Rambo. We all did. <laughs> we, we, we all wanted that Rambo knife in, in combat. And, you know, when I enlisted in the Army, it was July 10th, 1990. Iraq invaded Kuwait August 2nd, 1990. So less than a month after I enlisted by a Christmas of that same year, 1990, I was on a plane bound for Saudi Arabia. And you're how old? I was 18 at the time. And Lucas, I'm telling you, I never saw this coming. I never saw this coming. And so... You never saw what coming? I never saw a global crisis that would literally involve me, you know, 6,000 miles across the world in the middle of the desert about to participate in this war. Uh, my family yeah, never did, saw I mean, it coming. you just jumped, had just jumped, enlisted. jumped right into it. Yes, that's right. And I learned some things on the battlefield. I learned some things about my myself. I learned some things about the human condition and in human nature and chief among that is that you know people are not instinctually brave on the battlefield no one you know steps off a 
a Black Hawk helicopter. And so it's says, not like the movies? No. Guys are jumping off, hoping to save and protect okay. and support their brethren. Like that, that is what is going through your mind, accomplishing the mission and protecting those around you. And there, there is a bond that forms that really, you know, excels the average human experience. And I will also tell you, war is ugly. I think we have so much Hollywood around war in America that we've almost lost our ability to sort of appreciate how god-awful it can be. I'll take it one step further. The one thing I noticed about the Gulf War is that this was watched by everybody. I mean, the night... Yeah, it was the first big yeah. televised. That was shock and awe. It was. Yeah. It was truly shock and awe, and the world had held its breath, but the American public paid attention, I mean, intensely. Fast forward to the most recent war in Iraq. We watched, but three or four months later, we kind of all went back to our lives, and people paid attention, but as each month went by, we sort of lost track of what was happening there, who was impacted, what the casualty counts were, how the armed forces were performing, and, and what the challenges were. So, you know, the, the Gulf War taught me a lot. Taught me a lot about, you know, our culture, how we manage things. It taught me what we can be as a nation at our best and what I could be at my best on behalf of others. I'm fascinated. I mean, you're 18. Yeah. And you go from Canton to Kuwait. Yeah. Did I mean, it change you? Yeah, yeah I was going to say, a, like, a person. when you got there, you were like, I mean, you had to see, like, oh, goodness, yeah. what, what is this? Yeah, I, you know, at the time, I never would have articulated it to, you know, my brethren who were there with me. But I was in over my head, and I knew it. And I was in over my head emotionally in ways that you might not think. Yep, it was fear on the battlefield, but just being away from my mother and my father and my future wife, Angela, these things crushed me. I mean, yeah. they, they, cr- they literally crushed the... the but it's not uh, something you can speak about a lot, No. Right? You can't. It's deeply personal. So there's an emotional component to this that's personal and hard to define. But there's another side of it where I'm thinking back to my, my high school days. I graduated high school with maybe a 2.0, maybe it was 1.8. Definitely not college ready. I remember the Army recruiter saying, give that guy a D so he can enlist and ship out. And that was to my home economics teacher. Definitely not college ready, but as a result of the Gulf War, I came home that summer, enrolled in college at Kansas State University, took a couple hours there, left the military, and had the confidence because of the experience to navigate Ohio State and law school in about five and a half years. Wow. Yeah. It's a big transformation to, to go from being basically a D student to law school. And I, I'll tell you, uh, Scott, you know, the United States Army, it gave me confidence. It did. It gave me confidence. I'm, I'm, I'm not the brightest guy academically, but what the Army taught me is that the hard work, a little bit of diligence, if you can do that by way of longevity, there's very little that you can't get over, under, or around. And so I, I really credit the Army with, with so much of, you know, my, my current life experience. One other component to this is physically. I left the Gulf region. I didn't know it at the time, but I was sick. And this was likely something that, from an environmental standpoint, I inhaled or was exposed to. And so I was medically retired from the Army and have not been the same since. I mean, I arrived at The Ohio State University on a cane or a wheelchair chair as needed. I was not in the best physical shape, and and I I still have a long road ahead of me physically. This is how long after you come home? Yep, so war ended in May 1990. Started noticing symptoms that summer. So the summer of 1991, excuse me. um, And then by the summer of 1992, from a neurological standpoint, I had changed substantively such that I was no longer able to wear the uniform. Is this from like chemical weapons, you believe, or? Yep, so they have studied this carefully, and I have been you know, the beneficiary of some of the best medicine uh, around. I, I've been, you know, across the country seen by top flight physicians. And as best as we can assess, something I was exposed to, something I inhaled on that battlefield, just damaged my immune system, neurological system and, and the like. And so it's it's been a hard road physically. It has never been easy. And it won't get 
it e- uh, any easier. The, the battles I'm fighting, they are degenerative. That means yeah. they, they will not get better. Yeah, you've better. been public. You have Parkinson's. You- I do. And this it's not easy, Lucas, and I'm certainly not trying to be heroic about it. But even then, these things have somehow made me uh, better. I, I understand humility. I'm in political life. We politicians never want to admit any lack right we don't want to admit any lack a weakness we yeah, a weakness we always have to be the best in every category and, and flawless and i can tell you i am not i'm physically challenged it's hard to tie my shoes or button a shirt or to do some of the basic things and so that has really tainted my life with a good deal of humility you know i'm, I'm able to self-reflect about my own experiences but but also sort of translate that to other people who might be challenged in a thousand different ways i can appreciate but that mentally do you have anger about it that you weren't there that long yeah but the effects were almost immediate. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you're early 20s walking around campus with a cane in a wheelchair? Yes, yeah. It was hard because this is, you know, 1992. The Americans with Disabilities Act had just been passed. You know, in those days, if you used a cane or if you were in a van that had the disabled insignia on it and you were one of the students in that van being transported around because you could not walk, there was a stigma yeah. attached to that. But again, I learned about humility. I mean, I, I can't be ashamed of who I am. I am or what I had become, and I learned I simply had to be me, unashamed, because of that circumstance. So... Anger, no. I was outspoken against, you know, the Army and how they managed that, outspoken against the Department of Veterans Affairs and how they handled that. But, again, I, I learned a lot through that experience that throwing shade, as we say in Canton, or constantly challenging and attacking from a negative standpoint rarely produces results. And what I've tried to become since is really a champion for health care through the Department of Veterans Affairs. They have a huge job taking care of a million veterans, very significant, you know, medical issues that are unique to the rest of the population. And so... You know, rather than challenging and insulting them, try to be a champion for them and, and certainly applauding the very good work that they've done on my behalf. Wow. I want to yeah. switch it up just a little bit. We don't really get political a lot, but you're a politician, so, yeah. I, you know, I feel like it's fair game. <laughs> what would you say to people who say you're a Republican because you've basically proverbially made it, right? You're successful. You know, I assume financially you're doing pretty well. And so now that you've gotten yours, you've basically joined a party that promotes those values. And so for people who may not be where you are socially or economically, what would you say to those people? Because I hear that a lot. People say that for a lot of African-Americans that become successful and then join the Republican Party, mainly because they're about the money. And if, if you have money, then they're protecting your interests. But if you're not, then there's really no place for you in the party. How yeah. would you respond to that? Well, you know, I, I appreciate you asking that question, Scott. There undeniably is a theme out there that flows exactly as you've, you've stated it. And let let me answer that by giving you a little bit about my background. So I'm from Canton, Ohio. I spent the first eight to nine years of my life in an all-black housing project. And you can appreciate what we saw there. Lots of crime, lots of drugs. One of six children born to uh, Ruth and Clarence Mingo. This was the late 70s, very difficult time. Through a government program, we moved from that all-black housing project to a middle-class white neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And appreciate what we saw there. Racism at a premium. And, I, and I'm not just talking about, you know, subtle racism. I'm talking about overt or that word. I'll use it where adults n- tossed around on a daily basis. There was a petition taken out to have our family moved wow. out of the neighborhood. We woke up one morning. There was a little cross burnt on our porch. The house across the street, someone had spray painted n- lover on it. I mean, this was a serious time for our family. 
And I'm sharing that with you because I've had a dual education. I know what it's like to be on that side of the wall and on this side of the wall. I know how to navigate life on this side of the wall and on that side of the wall. And some of those experiences were not easy, but what they have done is certainly enhanced me and sort of developed my own perspective and understanding about people, places, and things. So you have a guy from, you know, a diverse background, if you will, by way of experience, now trending towards the, you know, Republican Party. And it has to be stated in honesty that we in the GOP, we have a lot of work to do on this issue. We have not given African Americans and other minority populations good reason to gravitate towards us based on recent events alone. And these events are not reflective of the entire GOP establishment, but I can tell you we absolutely have to do more. And that's not from a party perspective. I think that's really from a candidate perspective. Mm -hmm. I mean, every candidate has to have the resolve and the commitment to engage every single community and not just engage them around election time, but I'm talking about really endeavoring to understand them. I find myself, whether I'm uh, in my capacity as a Republican or otherwise, in environments and I'm the only African American there. I also find myself in environments where I'm one of a thousand other African Americans there. My point is, I've had this dual education where I've been able to experience and understand how both sides of that equation works. And I think the modern day Republican, for that matter, the modern day Democrat, they have to have the same ability. No matter where you are at, you have to have some ability to understand, to appreciate, and to engage comfortably the constituency before you. I've been in you know politics for the last 12, 13 years, and as a Republican, I've been a champion for a wide range of issues. As auditor, we've been a lot of time talking about affordable housing. Why does this matter to me? Well, because I'm a product of public housing. But in that duality you're yeah. talking about, mm-hmm. you know, putting yourself there in some cases, in some cases you can't because you can't help. You were born the way you were born. So yep. you didn't put yourself into being black. That's the way you're born. But you chose to be a Republican. So in that duality you're talking about, you put yourself where you have to defend on both sides. And that has to be exhausting because I'm sure you find yourself having to defend, you know, when you're confronted by um, your black friends and your family yep. where and then you go to a GOP gathering or something else yep. and you have to answer for the black community and hear maybe some racially yeah. tinged things. It has to be exhausting. Yeah. So let me tell you how that's playing out, Lucas. These days, at least where I'm concerned, most African-Americans in central Ohio, they know who claim. Clarence Mingo is. They know that I, you know, unashamedly am a Republican and they know what I stand for. They know the things that I champion. They know that I stand by the GOP when we're absolutely right. And when I need to take a step back and call some things out, I do that. Most of those African-Americans appreciate the fact that we need champions on both sides. We, We do, because here's the thing. Ohio increasingly is a red state. That means we have a Republican dominated legislature. Mm-hmm. We currently have a Republican governor and African-Americans need a voice in Republican circles for our concerns and our needs and, and policy issues. And so historically, African-Americans, we have thrived by going places where we were not always welcomed or not always expected. You look at Jackie Robinson in Major League Baseball or Thurgood Marshall on the Supreme Court. Those were institutions where African-Americans were not were not expected or wanted. And yet, we worked our way there. As an African-American in the Republican Party, this is exactly what I should be doing. I mean, I should be building a presence within one of the major parties in America mm-hmm. that not only understands mainstream American issues, but also understands niche issues relative to African-Americans. So I'm Clarence Mingo, comprised of many things. I'm a veteran. I'm African-American. I'm a Christian. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm all those things. In addition to that, I'm a Republican. But I, I try to bring that to bear. There are some tough things that come along with that, yeah. because as you and I have discussed before, 
when I started to hear about you and learn about you from other people, yep. you know, the phrase token black guy yep. got thrown around, you yep. know, that whenever the GOP needed a, a black face, yep. you know, that you had to be that guy. Now, there are harsher words in the black community that I heard that I won't go into, but yep. I'm sure you've probably heard them. I've heard and so, so yeah. you, So those names, and I just wonder how, how that felt, given your upbringing, yep. given your service to the country, like all those blocks that you yeah. used to build yourself, like how does that fall on you? Let me say early on it hurt, uh, Lucas. It, it did. I mean, no no one wants to be called an, an Uncle Tom knowing that you've lived and experienced by way of racism that most African Americans modern day have not lived. I don't know a lot of African Americans that have walked out their door and saw a little cross burnt on their porch or your lover spray painted on the other side of their house. I don't know a lot of African Americans that have had a neighborhood association take out a petition to have you move. I'm never in doubt about my own blackness, but even still, it certainly hurt and continues to hurt when people make statements like that. But I would simply say that, you know, it it has to be understood from two perspectives. Number one, I am an African-American Republican, but in this party, you don't get anything. No one gives away power. Like, you don't get appointed to an office in Republican circles because you're African-American. Power is valuable. These positions are valuable, and everything is competitive in the GOP. Um, there There is nothing given. I was up for state treasurer, was outflanked by... By Robert Sprague, our current state treasurer and a fine man himself, and one would have thought, well, the GOP needs an African American to sort of, you know, bounce against Trump in the perspective that we are not, you know, pro-black. But this party is competitive, and I would say, if anything, you have to work especially hard to convince GOP voters who might think you're a Democrat, right, because of the color of your skin, but also convince African Americans and other constituencies that you, in fact, understand them despite your GOP leaning. So, like I said, I've had this dual education: the comments, the Uncle Tom, and, and the token black person they are they are less in number as people know me but still early on in my career they they hurt and i'll say this i think it reflected a good deal of ignorance a good deal of fear but also a chance for me to sort of educate and impart a little perspective about who i am and how i came to be Mm. and why and that too's been a healthy dialogue speaking of trying to move the party to be more diverse be more welcoming to to other groups of people one of the things that you've been outspoken about is criticism of president trump and that was Actually, early on, that was during the campaign season when he was still a candidate. I want to play a little piece of audio of an interview you did on MSNBC, just basically your opinion on the president at the time, and and then we'll talk about it on the other side. Well, I think this whole issue about Donald Trump, it's bigger than politics. It it excels the concept of politics. This is about national unity, and what Donald Trump has successfully done is divided America along every single fabric. When you look at the establishment, that represents at this hour the best of the Republican Party. We're seeing the worst of the Republican Party and not the best representative of who we are in Donald J. Trump. So, Clarence, help me understand this, because I hear you say this. I hear a lot of, quote unquote, establishment Republicans say that the president doesn't represent the party. And yet, poll after poll, I can give you the the latest numbers say that 79 percent of conservatives or Republicans support the president. And and that's been pretty consistent between 70 and 80, 89 percent, which is an overwhelming majority of the party. So my question to you is, is it really a small 
fraction of the party that supports the president or is it maybe he does represent the party maybe it's a part of the party that you weren't aware of or maybe conservatives are sort of in denial I think sometimes they don't want to admit these things but explain to me how if the president has overwhelming support amongst Republicans how he does not represent the party uh, I'll tell you Scott when I gave that interview it must have been in 15 or 16 yeah perhaps. it was in 2016 okay and so you know I think at the time I made that statement there were many Republicans who openly were not rolling along with the president. Right. Um, and these were well-known. And, and where were, are they now? I'm, I'm coming to that. Okay. So, so when I make that statement, I think I was absolutely right about that. Okay. I think since his win, the GOP establishment in large part has you know very quietly fallen in line. And, and many Republicans are trying to have a dual existence where they support the president on one or two issues and, and they stand up and say that boldly. But on the 50,000 things that, that they know are not reflective of who we are as Republicans or as Americans, they are either soft or absolutely quiet about. And so uh, the president's power and, and gravitas and, and, and his ability to command even top flight Republicans, it is is supreme. I mean, there are very few people who are Republicans who have significant power and authority and position who are willing to buck up against that. And, and that is problematic. It's problematic. So I would answer to you today by saying the president controls the Republican Party. That is undeniable. My perspective on the president has not changed. This is not my type of politics. It's not a good reflection of the Republican Party. It's not a good time uh, for Americans. And I think we all should be deeply concerned. This is above, as I stated in, in that interview, this is above you know, party affiliation. This is really about the fabric of America, and we cannot quietly comply with this on, on any level. If you're Republican and you're in the state of Ohio or you're in the United States of America, we all should be thinking seriously about the things we are seeing, the things we have heard, and the things that have been done in the name of this party and on behalf of the United States of America. And I continue to think the president is not the best reflection of our culture. Thanks again for tuning in. Don't forget, we love to hear from our listeners, so check us out on our Facebook page at Facebook slash group slash other side podcast or hit us up on twitter at other side underscore pod and don't forget you can always email us at other side mailbox at gmail.com and we had such a great conversation with clarence mingo that we decided to split up into two episodes so don't forget this is part one tune in next week to hear the second and final part so until the next time try to see things from the other side Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.